0: So what? You dropped this little piece of paper. Yeah, so what? I just figured you probably want it back. What's the big deal? It's only garbage. Garbage? But Squidward, in the right hands, this paper is a gold mine of entertainment. A spectacular afternoon of underwater fun. A treasure trove of garbage.
1: So you don't want it. Really, what made it a great pitch is that. The fundamentals of of the show itself, his vision for the show, it was rock solid. It was all there.
2: Welcome to SpongeBob Binge Pants, Nickelodeon's official podcast about all things Spongebob. I'm Hector Navarro. And I'm Frankie Grande. Frankie and I are stoked because we are talking to an incredibly special guest today. He was a creative development executive in Nickelodeon in the 90s and was there. In the room for the famous Spongebob pitch meeting, we are talking to Eric Coleman today, and he's going to tell us all about that legendary meeting, and Eric has gone on to influence so much of animation history. He's now back at Paramount. We have so much to talk about, so we are so excited to get to talk to Eric Coleman. Let's get into it. After all of these years, when you see anything Spongebob out in the world, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you? What's the first thought or memory that surfaces?
1: It's kind of surreal, to be honest, because when I first started working on Spongebob, it was 1997. After the show premiered, I actually remember the first time I saw some Spongebob merch. It was like a little plush hanging from someone's rearview mirror in a car. Oh. I was walking down the street. cool. And I was mm-hmm. so excited because it was this validation that someone really liked it enough to spend their own money and buy this thing to express <laughs> their appreciation for the show. It wasn't great. someone at a party saying, hey, yeah, that thing you're working on, it's really great, man. Right. Good, good, Good for you. You know, I know that feeling. <laughs> and so this, I felt <laughs> like, you bought that because you genuinely like it while no one was looking. And... It's crazy to think that there was a time in this world where I would have that reaction because I saw some Spongebob merch.
0: Yes, I did. Ahoy, sir! What was that? But, sir, she snuck up on me. In my own dojo. Are you on some new allergy medication, boy? No, sir. Just practicing my karate, sir. Or karate, as some call it. Karate! You should be making me money with your spatule, Now get back to work! Aye aye, Capite! Nice hairpiece, Squidward.
3: Can we go back even earlier when you first got to
1: Nickelodeon? How did you start to like come up the ladder? I did start at Nickelodeon in ninety-two. I really was very fortunate to get my my foot in the door at Nickelodeon at a really special time, you know, especially when you look back at animation history, I was uh, temping in the live action department and at the Xerox machine, I met Linda Simensky, who was in the animation department. And for those who don't know Linda, you should look her up because she's had an incredible career and incredible impact. And she was my, my first real mentor at Nickelodeon. And I joined the animation department And this was right at the time where Nickelodeon was breaking into the first wave of Nicktoons. So Ren and Stimpy, Rugrats, Mm. Doug, Mm -hmm. and leading this new charge in creator-driven animation. And it's a little hard to either remember or for some listeners who just were not around what the landscape was like then where there were shows like Strawberry Shortcake and just all these kind of merch-driven shows. It Mm -hmm. was Mm -hmm. really... A bold direction for Nickelodeon to say we are making these shows that come from the mind of a creator that feel like they have the artist's imprint on them and they just feel so different. So, th- those first years are kind of my my real education. After those first three shows, there was Rocco's Modern Life, there was Hey Arnold, we were mm-hmm. working with Klaski Chupo on mm-hmm. other shows. Um, when Linda left, she went off to Cartoon Network to make amazing shows there. It was an opportunity for me to to sort of step up in the development side and start putting some of what I had learned into action. But even more than me putting anything to action, I would say was still the learning process. And mm. that was largely from my good fortune of being around Steve Hillenberg. So Steve, in the later Amazing. seasons in Rocco, he was the creative director. And Mary Harrington at that time who was the head of the department had the good sense to to sort of single him out and and know that we wanted to continue developing with him when steve wanted to pitch his own idea he came in and boy am i grateful that i was (laughs) at the pitch of spongebob squarepants
0: so fascinating so wonderful here we see bikini bottom teeming with life Home of one of my favorite creatures, SpongeBob SquarePants. Yes, of course he lives in a pineapple, you silly.
2: Before that initial meeting, you talked about how, like, you guys were making Rocco's Modern Life there at Nickelodeon, singling out Steven Hillenburg and knowing we want to keep Mm. developing stuff with this guy. He's such a talent, he's so special. What did you know about SpongeBob before the pitch? Did you know anything? Did you know, like, Steven's working on this thing, and we're going to hear about it, and then the pitch begins? Did you know anything about SpongeBob beforehand?
1: I did not. I've worked on other things where I uh, sort of had a, had a different relationship to the development process with the creators. The you know mm-hmm. avatar would kind of fall into that category. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. But this was more coming into the room knowing that Steve was a wonderfully talented artist and just kind of sitting back and letting it happen i'm happy that because it has become so legendary that sort of the (laughs) the The details the of it have been more burnished in my memory than other meetings <laughs> that I had 20-something yeah. years ago. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I of course, will, you didn't uh, know I will give an advance warning when you guys are going to ask, like, what were you wearing? <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> like, yeah. I, what, was the
2: t- what was the temperature outside <laughs> in that day? De- what you have for
1: breakfast? Knowing <laughs> exactly, the world was so, going to change that day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like some things I can share is that it it, it is true, all the things you've heard, that it was a really great pitch in the sense that it was really fun. Steve came in with his Hawaiian shirt. You know, you've, you've heard all the legends of the, the aquarium with the characters in it and the seashell and you held it up to your ear and you could hear this Hawaiian music. Um, Wow. But I am always quick to point out that that's not what made it a great pitch because sometimes people take the wrong message and, I have taken a lot of pitches over the years and sometimes when people come in dressed up and they come and they right. sing opera three feet away from me, like it's, those are not always the best pitches. <laughs> the key right, <laughs> to really what made it a great pitch is that the fundamentals of of the show itself, his vision for the show, it was rock solid. It was all there. And when I say all there, not just the tone of it, but the relationships, the dynamic of how the show was gonna move. And that's, that, for me, is a, it's a huge part of developing great shows, is having clear relationships and dynamics.
0: The Patrick! Where do you think you're going? I was just... No, you're not. You're going to the Krusty Krab and get that job! I can't, don't you see? I'm not
1: good enough. So you're not just pitching jokes, you're pitching a story engine. You're pitching how this thing can yes. sustain beyond just the initial pilot and beyond just the uh, uh, initial conceit. So the relationship among these characters, it was just crystal clear. And it was really fun and funny. The other thing that is worth mentioning is it's not like it was the life-changing greatest thing ever. And I know that's kind Mm -hmm. of not necessarily what everyone wants to hear, but it's the (laughs) truth. What I mean is when you're in development, you take a lot of pitches and- if you look at the the crew on Rocco's Modern Life it's like a who's who in animation the the people Mm -hmm. who went on Mm -hmm. and created other shows and produced other shows and had great involvement it was an amazing crew so um, it was a good pitch we we really liked it we were really excited to develop but it would be dishonest for anyone to say oh my god like we knew we had lightning in the bottle from that one pitch yeah right (laughs) <laughs> it's just that it was really solid. And I have always said, even as you look back at, at the, the show, the development and then the production of it, it's not that it's the greatest thing ever. It's just you watch an episode and it's just really good. And then you watch mm-hmm. the next episode mm-hmm. and it's just fun and really good. And then you watch the third episode and it's just, it's just good. And it's this cumulative effect where you just, as a viewer, then you form an attachment to the show.
0: My best friend in the sea. Ah! Squidward.
3: Likes Patrick more than SpongeBob.
0: And Patrick is a dirty, stinky,
3: rotten friend stealer.
1: You work a long time on a show before it actually hits the air, and they were gonna program it against the number one show. they were gonna Pokemon <gasps> was a huge hit. And I, you know, I didn't love the idea because I didn't want our little show to get overwhelmed by the, the juggernaut that was Pokemon. And I remember, and to their credit, they felt like, you know what, you got to fight strength with strength, and it and mm-hmm. and it was really true because once SpongeBob hit the world, I think people liked it, and then just cumulatively, just felt like it just feels so unlike anything else. It was yeah. just this expression of Steve's creativity his persona uh which was also amazing cuz Steve himself was was much quieter than you would imagine yeah um, mm. but he was brilliant i learned so much from working wow. with him and from the experience in those those early days like my my simple philosophy just great art comes from great artists and it sounds like a kind of an obvious thing but that's not <laughs> always how companies are driven or or tv development is driven on one hand steve deserves all this credit for this amazing creation and at the same time he'd be the first to say it was a a collection of amazingly talented folks and and the people Mm -hmm. he pulled together derek dryman and nick jennings tim hill and tom kenny added so much early on and it just felt really bold and confident what they were doing. It it was almost like Steve, he was not a flashy guy himself. He was not trying to Mm -hmm. make a flashy cartoon. He was just trying to make his cartoon.
0: Greetings, primitive. SpongeBob, is that you? SpongeBob? No, I am SpongeTron. Welcome to the future. What? Welcome to the future. Uh, the future.
2: Is it true, Eric, that, because we've heard this, that like, you know, immediately after this pitch, this now legendary pitch, whatever the next steps would be, that like, Stephen was offered a full season and he turned it down? Is that true that he was like, let me just do the pilot. Let me just do, you know, what I think would would service the story and these characters to a certain point and then we'll kind of go from there? Is that a true fact that he sort of turned down a longer
1: uh pickup sometimes there's kind of a combination of these two different pitches they get combined into the yep. the lore of this one pitch yep. one is the pitch where he literally sat on the couch in the Hawaiian shirt and presented mm. the materials <laughs> that is different than the storyboard pitch mm. where different executives were involved in this point it's all true it's just sometimes when it's pieced together people mm-hmm. have the impression that the first pitch was a whole pilot storyboard and they walked out and greenlit it after that. And that's uh, not gotcha. gotcha. The case. I don't know about the sort of the specifics of your question. Was he offered a big series right then? I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what was, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know the answer. At the time, there was an in- Impression some folks had of, hey, the way to make a hit faster is to get to strip more quickly. Yep. Because that's when things become a big hit. But I do remember Steve feeling strongly about not wanting that. And I, I remember it because I remember being so impressed by the thing most people want is a giant right. pickup. Most people want, oh my God, you want you want to go straight to 40 episodes? That's a lot of money oh. and a lot of commitment. And Steve was the opposite. He wanted to make 13 great episodes and then be out. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And whether he literally was planning on being out or not. But but like that was the sentiment of like, I just want to handcraft this this thing that's burning inside of me and I just do my own thing. So it's, it's ironic that the, the guy who wanted to make the smallest perfect thing ends up making one of the biggest shows <laughs> in the past couple yeah. of decades.
3: That sounded like Hatch Doors do you smell it that smell the kind of smelly smell the smelly smell that smells smelly
2: anchovies we are so fascinated to hear everybody's re- recalling their sort of contributions and you know kenny yeah. pittinger we talked to kenny pittinger who's an artist it's been there from pretty much the beginning he's like i came up with the with the unicycle, those little things like that, like anything that you can recall from those early episodes and the development, what was your contribution and what were you seeing and observing?
1: I was seeing and observing an amazingly talented creator and crew (laughs) back in the day when the storyboard is pitched, uh, is sort of pinned up on the wall. So Mm -hmm. we'd all be in the conference room, the whole crew and Tom Kenny would be there and, and he would pitch stuff out. And then I would respond to him not as a network executive who has notes, because I know better than him about what this story needs, but <laughs> just as an audience member, like, this is how I'm feeling. You know, I love this part. I love this. All feels great. But the beginning feels slow or the ending feels predictable. Mm-hmm. Or, cool. This joke is so great. But are we sacrificing the storyline just to get to that joke? And then we lose our momentum, you know, whatever it is. And his reaction was never, you're just a network executive. What do you know? His reaction was always like, huh, I don't want you to have that reaction. So that doesn't uh-huh. mean he would change it. We would talk about it. And sometimes he would say, well, the beginning feels slow because it's really posed out, but in my mind, it moves quickly. And when Got there's it. music, Got it's it. going to move quickly and I'm not concerned. And then I'd mm-hmm. say, great, <laughs> because yeah. I, I had no doubt that he had it under control. Or sometimes he would say, well, what if we did this or that? And I just, I remember Derek Dreiman would draw on post-it notes like in real time. You know, if that doesn't work, what about this? That's one of the things I love about Derek and, and Steve and a lot of people is they weren't precious. They would just, they always wanted to improve, improve, improve. And that was just kind of their guiding principle was just the, the quality of it. And they were very good about keeping the audience in mind. Just the notion of entertainment Mm -hmm. implies a relationship between the entertainer and the audience. Right, Mm -hmm. And some artists don't care about the audience. And I actually think those artists are awesome. They make really interesting stuff. And I love that kind of on the side. But Mm -hmm. if you are in an organization making content for a broad audience, you you, you need to pay attention to the audience and Steve was just always a consummate professional in that and and crew so it was they were always working things just to make them better and better and and as you all know it was not a script driven show so there would be outlines mm-hmm. and the stories could sometimes change drastically in the outline to service a better way to entertain even as they would change stories they still had a a sense of story and a sense of theme and a sense of what is the purpose of this episode.
3: Mm-hmm. So,
1: on one hand, I think SpongeBob just felt so different from everything else because it was so visually driven. Especially look at those early seasons where the gags—they're not set-up jokes; they're just these in, <laughs> in, in, just these bits of incredible animation. <laughs> <laughs> on its surface you could say spongebob it's really about a bunch of kids in the neighborhood you know like here they are playing on the block you know he's got his teenager job at the burger joint but i felt like in steve's hands it it didn't just feel like it was about that plot It, it just had this underlying sense of like the triumph of innocence and the, the power of creativity. And there are all these episodes that support that. Well, so here's an example, bubble stand.
0: Okay, Patrick, it's all in the technique. First go like this, spin around, stop. Double take three times. One, two, three. Then pelvic thrust. Woo! Woo! Stop on your right foot, don't forget it. Now it's time to bring it around down. Bring it around town. Then you do this, then this, and this, then and that, and this, and that, and this, and that and this, and that, and then.
1: I remember, even <laughs> though this is a long time ago, because it stuck with me. I was really hesitant because when when they pitched the premise of it and the outline of it, there I was concerned that that would not sustain 11 minutes because there's not a lot right. of story mm. there. Right, right. And right. and I shared that and we sort of talked through it, but I trusted Steve and and sure enough, you watch that episode, and it's so funny. It's so yes. sort of foundational in in kind of the types of storytelling you can come to expect from watching this cartoon. Mm-hmm. But in addition to that, you feel like you watch that that scene where he Goes through his dance and he blows the big bubble and and there's this party that feels like is this just about a guy blowing bubbles or is this about an artist just celebrating the power of creativity? Yes. And (laughs) so I watch it and you know it's like I kind of like get choked up because I just think of Steve like I just think of just taking nothing and making it something and that's a theme you saw there's the bubble stand they do that there's the one with the paper where he just makes stuff out of it and then there's another one (laughs) with a cardboard box
0: welcome aboard squidward you've just set sail on the ss imagination where our only destination is fantastic adventure where do you want to go first no no don't mind me.
1: I'm just- fundamentally it's it there's it a great simplicity to the show. It it sustained with the yes. same characters and that same dynamic for so many episodes because it didn't feel like it was about the plot of those episodes. It felt like right. it was about the characters. And I think there's also a real joy for the viewer in that SpongeBob is he's literally a square. Peg, who does not fit in. He's not an aspirational hero. He doesn't have powers, he doesn't have this, he doesn't have have any of that. Mm -hmm. Except in Steve's hands, he does not come off as the loser, he's the hero. And it just made the show feel different from what was to the left and what was to the right.
0: How am I supposed to enjoy your day off if you come to work anyway?
1: I want you to meet my new friend, Bubble
0: Buddy. This bubble is your friend? Well, he's handsome, I'll give him that. <laughs> well, let's be. Oh, I'm not hungry. Well, thanks for stopping by. Wait! You haven't taken Bubble Buddy's order yet! Why would I do that? He's hungry. He's an inanimate object. His money's no good here. What
3: are you saying, Mr. Squidward? Everyone's money is good here. Eric, you've worked on so many amazing shows, including Avatar The Last Air Raider, and SpongeBob SquarePants. You worked for Disney TV Animation, um, helped develop Gravity Falls. You've worked on so many hit animated series. I mean, it's just, it's, it's mind-boggling, frankly. <laughs> and uh, now you're back at Paramount. And um, how would you say that the experience of SpongeBob carried over into the rest of your career? And, and beyond that, do you see the influence of SpongeBob carry into these new eras of cartoons that are coming across your desk in the world now
1: post-SpongeBob's creation? One of the most important lessons I learned was to not just pay attention to what I think about things, but to pay attention to how I feel. There was a lot of stuff on SpongeBob that doesn't make sense. And <laughs> mm-hmm. fortunately, I, I I was on the inside of it with them. So I, I kind of was able to work through of like, oh, it doesn't make sense. And that's why it's wonderful. Still, as the executive on it, I felt responsibility to help them shepherd something through that would work. There's an episode graveyard shift the storyline kind of plays itself out and concludes and then as just a complete non sequitur they say well then who was flashing the lights and they cut to Nosferatu (laughs) and it just has nothing to do with anything
0: wait if that was you on the phone and you on the bus then who was flickering the lights
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and I remember this pitch, this storyboard pitch, and then you just get to this last this last frame, and everybody laughs, but I, I sort of feel the additional responsibility of I don't get to just laugh. I have to say, like, okay, we're good to go, or, like, that's mm-hmm. a, a really? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that that ending. And at that point in time, I just felt like, you know what? The story tracks, and here's this <laughs> extra bit. And Steve deserves the trust and the space. And boy, was he and the team right because that is that particular episode is like often cited as people's favorite episodes. And yeah. uh, you know, I think it like brought Nosferatu back into the culture for. A yeah, lot of people had no idea who who that that character was.
3: We had Jay Lender on our show, and he talked about this very very oh, moment yeah. where it, he it was, was in.
1: It was just so in that pitch
3: meeting, being like, "How's this going to go?" Yeah, <laughs> that's funny
1: that that he did because it's because it's literally yeah. it's like, "How's this going to go?" And it's and I and again I, I I laughed, but I just had the like, I have to make a decision. <laughs> you know, am I supporting them or am I saying we well, got to talk about this? And the, the big takeaway for me, I kind of pay attention to my gut and I, and I have a strong sense when I think something is not working and Mm. I have a strong sense when I think something is working, but when there's this gray zone and I feel nervous because I don't know, I have learned to lean into that Mm. instead of leaning away from it. I've learned that like, that's the area where the magic happens.
3: Hector, that was so much fun getting to talk to Eric about him being there, like in that room where it happened in that legendary pitch meeting. And I think the thing that was so uh, fun for me, um, it was the lack of fun that he was using to describe the whole thing, because <laughs> yeah. as an executive in the room, he was literally like, this is another day at the office, yeah. you know, like this, yeah. this is just another pitch coming across my de- desk and it happened to be a good one. So he said, sure, you get to move on to the next thing. It, there, there was no uh, clouds parting and booming voice that was like, you must make SpongeBob. <laughs>
2: And I think Eric had some great takeaways. Very inspirational for anybody who's listening and who someday hopes to pitch their own show to Nickelodeon or wherever. He said, look, it wasn't all about the flashiness of the pitch. It was right. that the foundation was strong. Those characters were solid. He, and, and Eric kept talking about that beautiful simplicity of Spongebob. Very touching to hear him talk about working with Steven Hillenburg and learning so much yes. from him. And it just, once again, confirms for us fans... The exact right people worked there at the exact right time to bring this show to life. It was a great, solid show in the beginning. It still is. But now it's also much, much more. It's this legendary, amazing show that we love. But uh, hey, it was just a bunch of really great, creative people working together and figuring out how to make a great show.
3: Yep, and push through the gray area because on the other side is where the magic lies.
2: Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Let us know what your favorite part of the interview was. Be sure to tune in every single Thursday for brand new episodes of SpongeBob Binge Pants wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, keep watching cartoons. Bye.